0: Welcome to the Data Savvy Teacher Podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. This podcast is for anyone who has a role in education and wants to learn how to improve their data using skills. As an educator, you're probably also a lifelong learner. So thanks for making this podcast part of your personal growth. And if you enjoy what you hear, please give it a rating on iTunes or share it with others. This helps more listeners like you find this resource as well. All right, let's get started with today's content. Hey everyone, let's start out today with a short trip down memory lane. Can you think of the worst test you've ever taken? You might have a few to choose from. Bad testing experiences can happen for a whole host of reasons, but in the next few episodes, we're going to talk about how to avoid creating bad testing experiences due to bad tests. When I was in college, I had a professor who wrote the absolute worst test I'd ever taken. There would be multiple choice questions with options A through G instead of a traditional A through D. And some of them would be things like B and C, but not D. And other answer choices would be A and D, but not C. It was ludicrous and illogical. Those tests were frustrating and anxiety producing. And I can't imagine that the data the professor received from those tests was helpful. He always had to curve them because we did so poorly. Now, many teachers write their own tests, myself included, but writing test questions is harder than many people think. There are some general guidelines for how to write test items. And then there are some guidelines for each type of question, like how to write good multiple choice items and how to write good, true and false questions. If you write your own tests, do you have some specific things you make sure you do or make sure you don't do when you write items? For example, when I write a test item, I sometimes catch myself asking more than one thing in the question. Now, one of the first good guidelines to follow is to ensure that each question asks only one question and make sure that question is clear. Questions should never be designed to trick students. It should be very clear what it is you are asking. Now it's okay if the question is difficult. We want to know which students can think at high and complex levels and which need more support to get there. And we use test items to determine just that. But each question needs to only ask one question and not be designed to intentionally confuse or trick students. So let me share a non-example. I'll read a statement and think about how you might try to answer this. The crowd reacted strongly to the speakers on the platform because of their impulsivity. True or false? Hmm. With this question, one student could read it that the crowd is impulsive, and another student could read it that the speakers on the platform were impulsive. It's not clear who the there is referring to. Okay, so first best practice is to watch for clarity. Make sure you're only asking one concept in each item. Now, let's talk about guideline number two, clues. The way a question is worded Or the answer choices, if multiple choice, shouldn't give the test taker any obvious clues. Let's say you have a multiple choice question, or maybe it's a fill in the blank question, and the question stem is worded like this. An example of a red colored fruit is an blank. If the choices are banana, coconut, lemon, and apple, and the question uses an, it's a clue that the answer has to start with a vowel. Because in English, we use an in front of words that start with vowels and A in front of words that don't start with vowels. The only answer that begins with a vowel is apple. Now I know this is a really silly example, but the point is that the question makes the answer obvious. There are other ways this creeps into item writing, and it's important to be on guard for this. So using words like always or never can be another type of unintentional clue. I see this a lot in true false questions. There are very few absolutes in the world. So usually students will choose false for these kinds of questions. So to make them think harder and better assess what they know, stay away from using always or never. All right, so we've covered guideline one, which is making sure we are clearly only asking one question and guideline two, which is making sure the question doesn't clue the student as to what the answer is or which choices are not possible. Guideline three is all about complexity. We want to avoid complexity and make sure the items are worded with appropriate vocabulary and structure. Test items should never intentionally confuse students by using above grade level vocabulary or really complex sentence. Now, if you happen to be teaching English and you are specifically teaching and assessing students on specific high level vocabulary, or teaching and assessing students on how to create or analyze complex sentence structure, that's one thing. But if you're teaching and assessing anything else, you should attempt to write clear, concise sentences that use grade level vocabulary. Okay, so what's grade level vocabulary? You probably have a good idea of the level of vocabulary your students know. Now, when I was a classroom teacher, I primarily taught ninth grade biology. And there's certainly some vocabulary I had to teach them, which wouldn't have been part of their typical grade level vocabulary. For example, when we learned about genetics, I had to cover chromosomes, centrioles, chromatids, chromatin, and centromeres. That vocabulary is academic vocabulary. Nobody uses those words unless they're specifically talking about mitosis. And once I taught it, it was appropriate to assess my students' understanding of it. So here's an example of an appropriate question using academic vocabulary and some grade level vocabulary. Which of the following would occur at the end of mitosis if a cell was unable to attach the chromatids to the centromeres? Now, here's the same question with inappropriate vocabulary and sentence structure. If a cell in a mitotic state is inexplicably prohibited from properly adhering to the chromatids and centromeres, infer the outcome of the cell following cytokinesis based on the implications of this scenario. I hope you saw the difference. There's no reason to use words like inexplicably prohibited and adhering or implications. Yes, a ninth grader probably should know those words, but what is the point of using more difficult vocabulary? And why make the sentence more clunky and challenging to read? If the student can't understand the question, then it doesn't help a teacher know if the student understands the importance of the chromatids correctly attaching to the centromeres. So, there are three major things to look for when writing test items. Clarity, clues, and complexity. Clarity is making sure there is one and only one clear question. Watch for unintended clues that will tip your students off as to the right answer without them doing much thinking. And finally, avoid being unnecessarily complex. Clarity. Clues, complexity. If you apply these guidelines someday when your students are asked to think of their worst test experience, your classroom will not come to their mind. There are several more specific tips on how to write good test items that are specific to those item types, and I'll be covering those in the next few future episodes. So challenge yourself to review your assessments and look for items that could be improved in clarity clues, or complexity, or a combination of all three. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Data Savvy Teacher Podcast. Tune in next week for more tips on writing good test items. And remember, a rating on iTunes gets this podcast seen by more listeners like you. So if you like what you hear, feel free to leave a review or share this with a friend. May the data be ever in your favor.